Well, thank you, Steve. Great to have that reading open in front of us. That's where we're going to be camping out tonight. We're in Matthew's Gospel. We're continuing our sermon series there as we look at Jesus, the King of God's kingdom. And the aim of this series is to explore the identity of Jesus by looking at the titles that are given to him. So we've looked at Son of Man and Son of David, and tonight we have probably a bit of an odd message, isn't it? Uh, A title that's attributed to Jesus, is Jesus Beelzebul, the Prince of Demons? Uh, Cut to the chase, won't leave you with a cliffhanger, the answer is no, but but we're going to explore that tonight, and that's what we're going to be unpacking. If I can remind you that we have a QA and a at the end of the message, and that'll give you an opportunity to ask questions I can't imagine why there might be any tonight, but I'm going to pray that, uh, that we might be able to make the most of this time. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you, our good God, are present with us tonight. We ask, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, that you might shine your light onto this word for us. Father, soften our hearts, open our ears, unclench our spiritual fists. Father, we pray that we might be open to what you would say to us tonight and that you might be active here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I want to start by pointing out something that's probably a little obvious. Uh, how many people wear glasses here? Okay. They're good, aren't they? Yes. Fantastic. Uh, it, it makes sense. We, we wear them to see better. How we see the world changes everything. How we see the world changes everything. And what I mean by that is not just through our glasses, but the way that we look at the world around us. Depending on how we look at the world, what we think of as our hope changes. What we think of is the help we can offer changes, and our picture of wholeness, what does good living look like, that all depends on how we see the world. I'm going to suggest to you tonight that we might, or each of us here tonight, we, we might be in one of three camps. The first one, when it comes to spiritual things, is what we'll call atheism. Now, I'm sure you've heard of this. This is no supernatural stuff, okay? So no gods, no spirits, nothing. It's a world that is purely mechanical, genes, chemistry, physics. That's it. No supernatural. There's another take on the world, which I've called here theisms, uh, gods, okay? In this take... We have battling supernatural powers. So there are good powers, bad powers. It's a spiritual world, but it's a mess. It's it's a battle. The third place that we might be in tonight is what I've called Christian monotheism. Don't freak out, bear with me. Mono is one, theism is God. So Christians who believe in one God. Is that okay? Christian monotheism. So our universe is supernatural and it's under the power of Jesus. A supernatural universe under the power of Jesus. Now tonight, I'm going to suggest that each one of us is in one of those three categories. Either there's nothing, there's something and it's a battle, or we're under the flag of Jesus. And what I want to do tonight is to show you that each of those positions changes how we see the world. So if we talk about the world itself, if you're an atheist, it's only material. The world started with the Big Bang, And genes and chemistry, physics, that's all there is around us, okay? That's that's the atheist view. If you're in more this theistic one, it's a mixture. There's spirits all over the place, and there may be all sorts of different stories about where the universe came from. Invariably, they're about a struggle or a battle. What about if you're a Christian? 
If you're a Christian and you're thinking about this, we believe in one sovereign God. What that means is one God who's king. He creates freely. That means God didn't, he didn't have his arm twisted. It wasn't in a battle between good and evil that creation just sort of spilled out. Creation's God's own sovereign choice. And he makes a good universe, which is now containing good and evil spirits. It's a supernatural and natural world where those things are together. What about people? Who are people in these different worldviews? Well, if you're an atheist, people are just ethical apes. Okay, this is really hard to escape. Okay? I, just, I like shining the light on if you're really, really atheist. Okay, if you're really, really atheist, then all we are is you know, it's just up the evolutionary tree and the fact that we can talk about murdering each other it might be a good or bad idea makes us ethical, but there's no foundation for that. We're just ethical apes. For those of you who live in a, a spiritual universe, maybe there are good people, bad people, open people, closed people. Spiritual and unspiritual people, but it's the way you see the world around you. What about Christians? Well, Christians believe that everybody here tonight and out there is beloved, yet they're fallen image bearers of the King. What that means is every one of us is precious. And if I can just let you on a little secret, guys, you can't value human beings unless you have this creation story. We're not individually valuable unless this is true. But Christianity doesn't say, oh, you're valuable, so therefore you're always right. No, 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 it says sin has affected each one of us. So beloved yet fallen image bearers. What about when it comes to hope? What do you hope in if you're an atheist? Well, if you're an atheist, you hope in two things, best I can tell. Education and hard work. Education and hard work. We need more knowledge and you need to work harder at it. that's That's our hope, right? Education and hard work. What about for the spiritual person? Well, we can hope that maybe our karma will be good. Maybe, there'll be, that maybe the stars will align on my astrology. The spirits will be for me. Maybe I can pick up a lucky object. Spells, practices, pilgrimages, palm reading, good and bad luck. I've said this three times across uh, church today. Can I tell you, church, we don't believe in bad luck. Do you know this? Look at me, church. Do we know this? We as Christians don't believe in bad luck. Why? We live under a sovereign God who rules the universe. There isn't any luck. There's grace. There's the consequences of sin. But there isn't any luck. Okay? And so as Christians, our hope comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Sin is beaten. Death is beaten. Jesus is raised up. And we are able to be changed not just through education and hard work, although let me tell you, work hard and get a good good education, right? But we believe in change, transformation, because the Holy Spirit will come and live in our hearts. That's what we believe. That is a different hope to the other visions of the world. Well, what sort of spiritual state does this leave us in? Well, I want to suggest if you're an atheist, it leaves you in a spiritually lonely place. Now, this is self-evident, right? If you don't believe in a God, you're lonely without having a God... That makes sense, right? But here's the thing. I was talking to a couple this week, and I was saying, I think everybody, regardless of whether you're an atheist, whatever, everybody has at least two moments where they want to call out to God. Some of you are too young to have had this moment yet, but that's okay. Hopefully it'll come to you. Uh, But when you hold your firstborn child, I'm telling you, there is an incredible moment. 
a moment of thankfulness. It just pours out of you. This is the most accessible miracle you will come across. There it is. It's extraordinary. And inside you wells up this thankfulness. And I don't just go, hey, well done, wife. Great work. That's not the kind of thankfulness I'm talking about. Although, thank you, wife. Should you have one? Yes, ladies, I'm acknowledging you're here. But, but here's the thing. There's an overflow. We want to take that somewhere. We want to thank something for this preciousness. That's God. At the other end of the spectrum, when everything goes the worst it can, all of us will eventually crawl out, God help me. Do you know this prayer? God help me. At either extreme, total joy and total despair, we cry out to God. And if you're an atheist, there is nowhere to take that. You are spiritually lonely. If you live in this chaotic world, uh, of the spirit world, you're overwhelmed. How will I know if my calm is good? How would I know if my stars are going to be aligned? And what do I do if they're not? What if I get a bad reading? We're just overwhelmed. What's the state of the Christian in contrast? The state of the Christian is peace. Oh, sure, you'll be worried about your exams occasionally and you'll have good and bad days, but ultimately, the settled state of the Christian is one of peace, a heart at rest, a peace that passes all understanding. Well, where does that leave us when we come to church? Well, if you're here tonight and you're an atheist, my guess is you don't ever pray, except for those two extremes that I was talking about. You won't have any joy in God because you don't believe in him. You'll have no hope in death because you don't believe in that. You'll think that anyone around you who's rejoicing in God is probably faking it because there is no God to rejoice in. And you have no place for good or evil because those categories don't exist. What if you're in this spiritual state? Well, I want to say to you tonight, if you're one of these spiritually aware people and you're at church, you'll probably be a social prayer. What that means is you'll pray when other people are praying. It might not be your general practice, but you'll fit in, right? You'll be a social prayer. You'll be uncertain about the spiritual realm. What if I have a bad day today? Did I offend some spirit? You'll be uncertain. You'll be wishing for heaven but not confident, and you'll feel occasionally guilty for your spiritual adultery. What, what do I mean by that? It, it, the spiritual didn't fit in, so bear with me. Um, what do I mean by spiritual adultery? You'll be here tonight and you'll go, God's awesome, but this week I, I, um, I read my stars. And you'll feel about that, gracious, I was turning my heart aside to another. Occasionally you'll feel guilty about that. In contrast, what will the Christians be like? Well, well they'll have a life of prayer. They'll have assurance of salvation. You'll know that you're a child of God. That will be your identity. You'll be filled with the Spirit. You'll rejoice in the goodness of God. And you'll be spiritually engaged and productive. Producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Will be more and more in your life. Why? Because God's at work in you. Now you can see they're very different, aren't they? They're very different. And how you see the world is affected by how you engage with this topic. Let's see that world in action. The world of the Bible unashamedly assumes supernatural things are real. So if that's going to weird you out tonight, that's okay. Come with me into the Bible and we'll see it. We're actually going to talk tonight about demons, unclean spirits, unclean spirits. We're going to talk about them tonight. 
Matthew, in his account of Jesus' life, has seven places where he mentions demons. The first one is in uh, Matthew 7, where he talks about um, many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and raise the dead? And he'll say, I say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. There'll be some people who are faking it. Then he says in, uh, in Matthew 8, he tells us a story about Jesus casting out the man who had all the demons in him into the pigs. Do you remember this story? Some of you can nod your heads. It's an awesome story, right? The demons are cast out and the, the pigs run down the hill and kill themselves. There's another story in chapter 9 where a man with a demon is mute and he speaks again. We're going to look at that one very soon. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and gives them authority to cast out demons as well as preach the good news. Uh, in Matthew 11, we're told, as the reading that we heard earlier, John the Baptist was accused of having a demon because he didn't eat and drink like the Pharisees. He was accused of having a demon. Uh, then in Matthew chapter 12, one that we're going to look at again tonight, Jesus says that if I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the last instance of demons in Matthew's gospel is in chapter 17, where Jesus comes across his disciples who couldn't cast a demon out of a boy. And says, you know what? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will be able to cast this demon out. That's in chapter 17. But we're going to start by going to chapter 9, and then we're going to go to chapter 12. Let's go there now. So we're going to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. As we go there, um, can I ask who here likes renovation shows? Some of you do, some of you don't. Renovation shows, why do we like them so much, right? Here's your normal garden variety disaster. And what does a renovation show show you? It shows you transformation. It's beautiful, it's exciting. Somebody else does all the hard work. We just sit in our armchair and it happens, right? Who wouldn't like that? Who wouldn't like that? And I think part of it is not only do we like watching the transformation, but we want to believe that perhaps transformation like that can happen to us. That inside, the junk room can be turned into some beautiful place. Well, that's, that's kind of what's happening here in, uh, in Matthew chapter 9. Come with me. We're, we're going to verse 27. As Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, it, uh, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and they said, nothing like this has been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Well, it's an extraordinary little set of circumstances here. The first thing to note, I want to tell you today, is that blind men can see. Blind men can see. What was the name? Have a look at your Bibles. What was the name that they were calling out to Jesus? Son of David. Now, we saw last week, this is an awesome title for Jesus, right? But here's the thing. No one in Israel really gets it. But two blind men called Jesus Son of David. Blind men can see. That's helpful, isn't it, right? Blind men can see. Secondly... We can see that the people aren't sure what they've seen. We've never seen anything like this. They're, they're, they're taken aback at the miracles that Jesus does. But there are some people who know what they've seen. 
That's the Pharisees. They're the religious leaders in Israel. And these guys reckon they know. Have a look at verse 34. The Pharisees said it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They think what Jesus has done is demon-powered. That's pretty condemning, really. We're going to go to chapter 12. And as we go there, I want to show you just a little bit of context. So the Pharisees, who think that Jesus is actually doing what he's doing by a demon, have actually decided something pretty drastic. Have a look with me at chapter 12 and verse 14. In chapter 12 and verse 14, we see this. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might what? Kill Jesus. These guys have decided that Jesus' death is the next step. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Jesus is smart, isn't he? I'm, I'm hanging out with people who've decided they'd like to kill me. What does he do? Withdraws from that place. Now, that, that's not rocket science, but it's good to see he's doing that. He withdraws from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, listen to these words, guys. We're going to go back to Isaiah Isaiah spoke about 600 BC, and he speaks about one who will come. Matthew, who's writing this account of Jesus' life, says this was to fulfill what Isaiah had said. What had Isaiah said? Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is such a beautiful statement. What do we see? Jesus is the one whose God's spirit is on and he is going to bring beautiful healing to the nations. He's going to be the suffering servant. Well, straight after that, we get to our next little bit here in verse 22, where Steve read for us. But before we do that, I want to just have a quick comment about name tags. Hey, everyone, have you got your name tags on? Okay, do you know why we have name tags on? We have name tags on not just to be awkward, but here's the thing. Okay, it's actually to save us from being awkward. Okay, because when I meet Tim on the first week, I come up to Tim and I say, hey, Tim. Oh, no, sorry, first time I meet him. Sorry. Hi, my name's Stuart. And you say, yep, and your name is? Tim, oh, Tim, Tim, right. And I make a mental note. I'm going, to, I'm going to remember Tim, right? And we have a chat, and the next week I see Tim, and I walk up to him, and I'm like, but I remember his wife's name is Naomi. So I go, hey, how's Naomi, mate? Right? Okay. The third week, when I'm following up what he said about Naomi, it's absolutely, the ship has sailed. I can't now ask Tim what his name is, because we've had three weeks worth of conversation. Why do we wear our name tags, everyone? It's not because you're not special or important. It's so everybody else gets to know one another, and we don't feel awkward. Good? Okay, let's come back to the Bible. It's all about names in here too, wonderfully. Uh, let's have a look at what happens. Verse 22. Uh, then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished could, and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Remarkable, okay? First thing to note is the man was healed. Often they'll say the demon was cast out. And that for me is bad thing removed. That's just an empty box. But when it talks about the man was healed, I love how whole that is, right? The man was healed. He could then see and speak. 
How beautiful is Jesus' freedom that he brings, right? He's healed. Second thing, we see that the people are wondering, is Jesus the Messiah? Again, this question comes up. All the people were astonished. Could this be the son of David? It's possible. But again, we see the Pharisees have made their decision. They say it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. They're saying, nah, not the son of David. Instead, the prince of demons. Now, that is a big title to label on Jesus. Uh, has anyone ever seen one of these um, reenactments, uh, Civil War reenactments? Have you actually seen one, Steve, in person? That's pretty awesome. But you've seen them on TV. Well, what happens, guys, this is in South America, and, and what they do is everyone gets dressed up, and they go and run into a field, and they, they pretend they relive the Civil War in America. I remember my dad went to Texas, and he said, the taxi driver said to him, the war isn't over. And he was just very scared, as the guy had a shotgun at the back of his... Anyway, it was all very exciting. But the idea of a civil war is this. Who wins in a civil war? No one. If you take ground in a civil war, do you get more territory? Well, no. By definition, you're in your own country. If you kill more of them than they kill of you, who wins? No one. Everybody loses in a civil war. Keep that in mind. Have a look what Jesus says next in response to the accusation that he's the prince of demons. Have a look with me at verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your people drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does Jesus do? Well, firstly, he says that if Satan's fighting Satan, civil war is on and Satan's losing, right? It's not good. Second thing is he, he kind of catches them in a little logic trap because apparently there are other Jewish people who cast out demons. So they've said to Jesus, Jesus, you're casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus goes, okay, let's imagine that's true for a second. If that's true... How are your blokes casting out demons? Right? The answer is, they would have to be under the influence of the prince of demons as well, wouldn't they? Fail. Logic fail. And Jesus isn't afraid to show them that that's a problem. And then he says, actually, what you're seeing is not the prince of demons, but the inbreaking of the spirit of God and the coming of the kingdom of God. It's really exciting. He says, that is what you are witnessing. He goes on to explain their error a little bit further. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, we go to verse 29. He says, Or again, can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you that every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Well, the first thing that Jesus is saying is, if you want to rob a strong man's house, what do you got to do? Somebody, people pay, some people are paying attention. You've got to tie the strong man up, right? What does this tell us? Jesus is stronger than Satan. He says, I'm here, I'm the stronger man. That's what Jesus is saying. So Satan is no match for Jesus. 
Secondly, he says that there is a blasphemy that can be forgiven that involves the Son of Man and a blasphemy that can't be forgiven, which is to do with the Holy Spirit. At which point, everybody goes, okay, but why? Why that distinction? Let me see if I can try to explain to you one of the more difficult bits in the Bible. I'm going to do it using a very technical illustration, okay? Very technical, so you need to switch your brains on. Sunday night, is everyone ready? Okay, great. Does does everyone know about trees? Have you heard of trees? What if I tell you about fruit trees? Have you heard of them? Fantastic. We're doing really well so far. Secondly, you've heard of fruit? This is great. Okay, all right. Here we go. Here's the illustration. This is as technical as it gets tonight. Okay, you ready? Uh, Jesus actually tells us in verse 33, he says this, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So what he's saying essentially is good trees produce what? Who's going to guess? You guys are onto this. It's so good. Okay. Good trees produce good fruit. And what he actually says is you can know what kind of tree it is by looking at the fruit. There's no good fruit from a bad tree. So if you have good fruit in your hand, what do you know? Okay, we're doing logic. This is just outstanding, outstanding work. Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is so key. If you've got that clear. Jesus says, look at the fruit that I'm producing. Look at the fruit that I'm producing. What am I producing when I engage with people who have demons? What do I produce? I produce people who are free, who are sane, who are whole, who are healed. This is not mistaken mental illness. This is evil spirits inside people being driven out and a return to sanity and clarity, wholeness and healing. And Jesus is saying, if you see that fruit, you need to then ask a question about the tree. What tree can produce this, God or Satan? Do you see? And so when we get to what is the unforgivable sin, which is one of those big, classic, massive questions, what's the unforgivable sin? I want to suggest to you it's relatively straightforward. The unforgivable sin is identifying and condemning the work of God's Holy Spirit as the work of Satan. So if you look at a whole human who's been made fresh, free, new by the coming of God's Holy Spirit, and you say, that's evil, it comes from Satan, that is the unforgivable sin. Saying God's freeing, healing, life-giving work is satanic, that's, that's the unforgivable sin. Why is it unforgivable? What's well, unforgivable, because if you called the good God evil, who is going to forgive you? You've got no one left to turn to. I was thinking of you guys this afternoon when I was going to explain this, and I've got one more illustration, which I haven't tried out on the other services today, so bonus material for you guys. Okay, I want you to imagine, because I think this is so important. Okay? Firstly, I, I want to just make this point. There are no accidental eternities. What I mean by that is, you kind of accidentally said something against the Holy Spirit and then go, <gasps> Did I just commit the unforgivable sin, which means I can't now go to heaven? Don't worry about that. It's not a mistake of words. It's a settled attitude of heart that calls God's good work evil. I I, I don't think there's anyone here who's doing that. But, But let me give you an illustration. It would be like somebody who's floating in the sea that is on fire, right? Now, that's a terrible thought. We're in the sea, and it's on fire, okay? In the distance, you see a rescue boat. 
the rescue boat, impervious to the fire, comes in and somebody is reaching over and grabbing people out of the water, extinguishing the fire, washing them off and setting them in clean clothes on the boat in safety. If you look at that happening, okay, and you say that boat is causing the fire, that boat is burning people, that boat isn't helping anyone, they'd be better off in the sea, that's unforgivable. You'll never be saved because here's what you will never do. You'll never call out to be rescued by that boat. Are you with me? So it's unforgivable because you're calling the goodness of God evil. It's unforgivable because you'd never ask him to forgive you, to rescue you from the flaming water and put you on the ship and wash you off. Are you with me? Unforgivable sin. And here's what I want to tell you. Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. Now, I'm about to get excited, church, okay? Just a little warm up. Okay, I'm about to get excited. I think this is extraordinary, and I love that this is true. Ha have a look at this. I love this verse. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, it says this. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's awesome, right? He came to destroy, to crush, to demolish the work of the devil, to set captives free. That's what Jesus came to do. Where do we see that rescue happening? In Colossians chapter 2, we're told. Uh, this is a beautiful passage. We'd lo I'd love to read all of it, but, you know, we won't. Uh, go home and do it. Colossians chapter 2. It says, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. He's saying all the spiritual enemies of God were destroyed. Where? At the cross. At the cross is where the accusation against us, our sin, is paid for. It's where death, the ultimate thing that stands against us, is broken. The Son of God on the cross wins victory for us. He defeats Satan and death on the cross. Now that's spectacular. And I know I said this this morning as well, but I know it's Sunday night, right? We're doing all right. Is that right, church? Yeah. Doing all right. Okay, good. Yeah. Satan, unforgivable sin, something, something. Yep, 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 yep. I don't know. It's good, I think. And maybe, maybe we're almost at supper. Guys, can I just tell you, okay, we can get excited watching a game. We can get excited watching our, uh, a concert of the people that we love. We can get out of our chair. We can sing along. We can clap. We can cheer. And I've just told you, Satan destroyed, no, Jesus destroyed, destroyed Satan and death. And we go, mildly interesting. Now, church, okay, you don't need to jump out of your seat. You don't need to call out amen because we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. But if you actually believe in the spiritual reality, if you're not make-believe Christians and we're not atheist in our worldview, then I've told you that Jesus is the supreme power in the spiritual realm. He's the name above every name, that he is victorious and that he is one. And if it doesn't stir us, I haven't got anything else to offer you. This is the great stuff. The Son of God appeared to destroy the work of Satan. We, we should be mildly excited about that. Now, how do we live as people who know the work of Satan has been destroyed on the cross? How do we live? Well, I want to tell you, church, join the winning team. Join the winning team. You'll hear me say this again and again, okay? It's a great day to get saved. 
If you're here tonight and you're thinking, you know, I came in here uncertain about heaven, make sure tonight. I want to get right with God. I want to know for sure that I'm forgiven. It says in Colossians 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Get on board the boat. Get on the winning side. Know your call sign. If we're going to go into this battle, who are you? You are children of God. Have a listen to what it says in 1 John 5. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Who are you? On the battlefield, you are a son and a daughter of God. And he will never leave you or forsake you. Thirdly, you should know your kit. I was talking to a guy this morning who literally served in Afghanistan. He said he'd just come from his shower. He's in his little compound in the middle of Afghanistan, in their little compound. He's just come from the shower. He's got his boxes on and his flip-flops, and whoop, 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 they're under attack. So what does he do? First thing he does, throws his armor on, grabs his helmet, and reaches for his rifle. No time to put all the rest of it on, but body armor, helmet, gun. Right now, we're on the battlefield. It's happening now. And church, what I want to say to you tonight is that God has got armor for you. It says in Ephesians 6, they're put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Do you know the spiritual armor that God has for you? It's in Ephesians 6. We're not doing that sermon tonight, but go home and look it up. Do you know he's got weapons for us? Do you know that some of us have a towel over our shoulder in our boxer shorts and flip-flops in this spiritual battle? Tonight, right now. We're not aware of the battle and we don't have God's armour. Get equipped. You are on the battlefield. Two more points for us to make. The first one is we should know our enemy. It says in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a spiritual force that will oppose the spiritual reality of believers. True. They won't overwhelm us. They won't defeat us because Jesus is on our side, but it's real and we need to dial in to know our enemy. And if I can use the military metaphor, I want you to hold your ground right where you are until your captain comes and relieves you. Until the captain comes and relieves you. Until he taps you on the shoulder and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Until Jesus returns in glory and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, it says here that our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies. So it'll be like his glorious body. One day Jesus will be back. And when he is, will he find you ready? Will he find you standing firm on the day that he returns? We need to be ready. Well, what should we do? Well, if you're here tonight as someone who started with an atheist mindset, I want to tell you, please reject the material-only worldview. There is a cry in you that needs to find out who's on the end of the phone. Come and do Jesus for the curious with us. For those of you who live in this mixed spiritual world, I want you to repent. Repent of your casual spiritual adultery. We don't look to have our palms read. We don't talk to psychics. We don't look at the stars. We are those who are faithful to our spiritual father. We will be faithful. And so we need to repent if we've done that. Thirdly, if you are a Christian here tonight, I want you to stand firm, wait well for your God, and look for his call. One day he'll return with a trumpet blast, and it will be worth it. We'll finish with this. We're looking tonight, is Jesus Beelzebub? 
Well, the, the Pharisees called Jesus Beelzebul, and here's what he says. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Brothers and sisters, we'll get slandered if we stand with Jesus. But I want you to know that if you're an apprentice to Jesus, you need to be engaged in the spiritual battle. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're good and gracious. Your son is victorious. And you are the one who stands beside all who call you Lord. Father, I pray tonight that you would switch us on to the spiritual battle, that we might know the resources that you put at our disposal and that we might take ground as your kingdom advances. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's some stuff on Satan, demons, and unforgivable sins. Has anyone got a question? A question that might get us started. Oh, Kara. First up. Um, so talking about the unforgivable sin being really rejecting everything that God does and calls it evil. Yeah. Is that correct? Um, which seems to be the atheistic view because they're not acknowledging God and they're saying that – is that true? Uh, and my, no, so my question is that uh, I think we do know of atheists that have turned to Jesus and so it's not the unforgivable sin because they have still had the ability to, to change and turn. So yep. can you explain that a bit? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So is it unforgivable? So, so here's the thing. P- Peter denied Jesus, do you remember? You would think that denying Jesus has to be up there as one of the unforgivable things. What do we know about Peter? When he repent in tears, what happened? Well, Jesus restored him, didn't he? So, so there's a sense in which any settled state of heart will put you at enmity with God. If in God's mercy you turn from it, then you don't have a settled state of heart that says that God is evil because you'd never turn back to him. So anyone who turns to God will have turned away from the thing that would have kept them from being forgiven. Does it make sense? So it's not unforgiven in the sense that one day, if I ever have that thought, I'll never go to heaven. It's not like that. It's not a one-off thing. It's a settled state of heart that we don't turn from. We continue down a path of saying God's evil. And if we die like that, we'll be unforgiven. But should God in his mercy soften us prior to the end of our lives, we won't still be doing the unforgivable sin. Do you see? And so we won't die unforgiven because God is willing to forgive all who are repentant. Does it make sense? It's hard. It's not just a one-off thing. So it's not like I flicked my brother's ear, oh dear, that's it. It's done. It's a settled state of heart. Make sense? Okay. Naomi, follow up. Or a new one. Could be follow up. No, it's follow up. So just trying to get that in my brain. Isn't that all sin if we don't repent? Mm. So then therefore the unforgivable sin is just all sin. Unrepentant hearts that call God evil will condemn everyone. But it's particularly in this instance, right? So Jesus says it's it's particularly the unforgivable sin because what he's looking at, he's looking at the religious leaders of Israel who should know better than anyone, right? They're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit setting people free and they're saying that the Holy Spirit's good, life-giving work is the work of Satan. He says, guys, you go down that path, There's no way for you to be saved because you'll never turn to the God who actually sits behind that. So you're in a state, essentially, of being unforgivable 
Because you'll never turn to God while you call his work evil. Go, come back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what to come back with. I, I guess I'm just thinking... I'm not like, winning you over, is no, the point. No, 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 I'm just trying to get it all in my brain. Um, so Paul, for example, obviously we know that Paul was a pretty bad guy before he turned and repented. Yeah. So I guess we don't want to think that there's any path that we can go down where Jesus can't reach us and we, where we uh, can't absolutely. repent. Absolutely, yes. That's so really... even though they are committing this sin against the Holy Spirit, yes, they're going down that road, but that doesn't mean they can't come back, right? Yeah, so here's the yeah. thing. I, I will never stop praying for any human being that has breath in them. Why is this? Uh, longer story than I probably should tell, but I was called to a deathbed many years ago. And it was a guy who, when I walked into the house, his daughter said to me, this is the last man who would ever have a priest come. He's lived his whole life hating God. But he's been so upset for the last week, can't get any peace as his cancer was taking hold and he was dying. And she said, he just keeps on asking for a priest. So I called up your church and I had the pastoral care phone that day and so I got the call and so I go along and I'm going in what am I walking into so I went with this guy and I sat with him and we read the 23rd psalm together and I said to him would you like to pray a prayer of repentance I didn't even know he could talk he was so I mean this was a scary situation for me that's how that's how close to death he looked and so I said what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray this prayer of repentance and I'm going to leave space for you to pray it in your own heart if that's what you would like to do. So I pray, leave a space, and then he grabbed my hand and said, I want to pray. And he prayed the words of each of those lines of the prayer of repentance all the way through. I assured him of forgiveness, and he lay back and fell asleep on his pillow. His, his daughter came in. I read some more scriptures and stuff. His daughter came in and says, he hasn't been at peace for the last week. I got a call the next morning that said he died. Now, I believe that that man, who everybody who ever met him would have said was an enemy to God, is in glory. Don't give up on anyone while they have breath in them. He would have been committing the unforgivable sin had he not turned at the end because his heart was settled in that. But God in his mercy saved him at the end. So here's the thing. What's the application? First of all, don't call God's work evil. Everyone on board with that. Second one, anyone you're worried about who you think might be committing the unforgivable sin, pray for and ask that God might have mercy and soften their heart. Does that make sense? Jesus is really warning these, these leaders of Israel and saying, you continue down that path, no chance. That's, that's what he's doing. Follow-up, questions? Not a question. Okay, question. Can you go back a couple slides? You're finishing up slides. You had three points there. Yeah, that's it. Go. Reject, repent. It wasn't a question. I just wanted to say and be reminded of them. Sorry. No, <laughs> okay, actually, really no I actually do have a question. One yeah, that's challenged sure. me. Um, it's going to sound like I'm defending the Pharisees here, but um, as but a tip, everyone, pro don't, tip, don't defend the separate. But um, keep going, Sean. Spirits we hear a hell of a lot about, especially in the Gospels and the New Testament. Yes, yes. Um, for the Pharisees in the Old Testament, was the spirit. The Holy Spirit, were they aware of the Holy Spirit? Were they aware of evil spirits? Like I'm just, there's a pop-up in my diary here that talks, the diary of my Bible here that talks about a verse with 
the spirits, like I think it says one Kings and um, Job one and two. There's yep. a couple. Was it active? It's probably a historic question. But spirit talk active? Anyway, that's a question. Yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing. Uh, this, these are all the things that I read for a week that never make it into the sermon. The, the Roman world, the Roman world was saturated in gods and spirits, immensely in the grip of fear from pervasive spirits all around them. So they were bound in slavery to fear of spirits. That's just the reality of everybody in the Roman world. Apparently, if you come to an intersection, right, at the intersection, that's a point of bad luck. And so you need to offer an offering at that point so that a bad spirit doesn't get you. You wear a bulla around your neck to ward off evil spirits. You, you go to make offerings in temples. You live afraid of the spirit world. That's everybody in the Roman world. For the Jews, they would know the goodness of God and they would also know of evil spirits. And Job is the best place to go um, if you want to have a look at that, absolutely, and the the King's Passage. Um, But yeah, they knew about evil spirits. People often say, how come I don't see so many demons in uh, Oran Park as uh, Jesus had? Well, you can imagine that if Jesus is walking along the road and Satan is trying to stop him, would you expect to see enemy spirits manifest around Jesus. I would expect that. When I go shopping at Coles, do I expect enemy spirits to manifest? I don't think I'm as far on the radar as uh, Jesus might have been. Not to say if you don't go to other places, you won't see more of it, but I think in Oran Park, Satan has a field day with us with all sorts of material idolatry that doesn't need to be spiritual first and foremost. Long answer, Steve. Very quickly... Um, we are increasingly being open to things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, read your palm, it's coming into shopping centres, crystal shops. I mean, has any of this got uh, anything to do with uh, the spiritual battle that Christians are in, yep. uh, that we're facing? You know, like, can you make a comment on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. And how we should respond. So here's the thing. Uh, there is... A spiritual realm. There are evil spirits. There is spiritual power at work in the world around us that isn't holy and good. It's unclean. Okay? If you dabble in these spiritual things that are just kind of new agey or fun or whatever, you are opening yourself to the potential engagement with evil spirits. It's not to say that if you buy a... I don't know. What's the, what's the thing with the feathers that you hold up and you put... It, Dream so all of a sudden you haven't suddenly entered into a, a world of, of um, Navajo Indian spirit worship. or something. That's not necessarily the case. But by the same token, when you open yourself to that world and you think this is going to help me spiritually, you are putting yourself under, you're inviting the influence of evil spirits. Can I tell you who will help you to sleep better? The Lord Jesus. It actually says that he grants sleep. Pray to him. Don't seek a shortcut that relies on other spiritual activities. Long answer round, Steve. Don't dabble. There's a reality behind it. And while you're playing, you might stumble on the real thing. And if I could just um, comment with the uh, Indian thing or whatever. (laughs) I just plucked one. No, no, no. We need to be cautious, I think, of people of weak faith 
who come in uh, to our homes and see that, yep. or for an example, uh, you know, the red dot uh, for Hindus and so on, who come in who've been converted and they might say, whoa, you know. You're causing so, me to stumble here. Yeah. Get rid of that. Okay. Absolutely. I think I might stop, not because you won't have more questions, but because supper is smelling great, is it not? Um, come and talk to me over supper. I would love to, love to have more conversations. Can I get you, to, Michael will get you to use the Care and Connect card, so I'll hand over to him. He'll tell you what to do.